Hey there. Thanks for joining us at Risen King Church for our weekly podcast. We hope you experience God today. Make sure you visit us at risenking.life to take all your next steps and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Enjoy the message. And we have our uh, scripture for today. We've been going through the parables that Jesus taught. We come to this parable in Luke 18. And uh, one of his most significant parables that he ever taught. So let's read this uh, together. I like it when you read out loud with me and we read the Word of God together as a church. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner." I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Most of the parables of Jesus fit into categories. This is one of the most important categories that Jesus ever taught on. It's the category of who gets into heaven and who doesn't. Who is lost and and who's saved. You know, here are two characters. One is included in the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. The other is not. Now, for most of my ministry and most of my adult life, I've been trying to convince people, persuade them to accept Jesus as their Savior, to persuade them to embrace the gospel as important and essential for their life. And and a lot of times when I've shared the gospel very directly with people. I use a method called evangelism explosion. And in that method, there are these two questions that, that are asked. My, my favorite time that we ever did this as a family, uh, we went door to door in inner city Detroit, uh, just sharing the gospel with anyone who would open the door to us. And we, we actually made ourselves a little less threatening. Anna was a baby. My daughter was a baby, so I carried her in a snuggly. Joseph stood by my side and Lisa was right beside me. And so we were very non-threatening to everyone that we met because here we were, this family. And we didn't, you know, we, they sometimes wondered if we were Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses or whatever. But, 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 you know, we'd come and I'd ask them these two questions. And I'd say, do you know for certain that if you died tonight that you would go to heaven? And I will say to you, the majority of the people that I met said no. We also did a lot of street preaching. And uh, we would go to the spot in Detroit where drug deals were going down, where the prostitutes were soliciting. And we would preach the gospel with a bullhorn or a little portable microphone. And and, uh, I would go up to them and I'd ask that same question. I'd ask the drug dealers and the prostitutes, do you know... If you, for certain, if you died today, that you'd go to heaven. And every one of them said no. And I would, I would say, well, let me ask you a second question. 
if you were to die today and you were to stand before God and He were to say to you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? Now, I got just a, a whole lot of different answers. But one of my favorite ones, one of, the, one of the women who was soliciting there said to me, well, I don't know, but I think it's because I don't judge anybody. At least I'm not like those people who judge people. It's always funny how people who don't judge are judging those who judge. But uh, an interesting, interesting response. Well, what is that question really about? Well, the question is this, is that every one of you at some point will stand before your Creator and He will ask you to justify the life He gave you. He will ask you to justify your existence. He will ask you to defend your actions and your choices and your thoughts and even the things you thought nobody else saw. And so this parable is the Creator Himself saying to you, here are the ones who get in, and here are the ones who are left out. And so it's important that we look at this, but if you've been around the church your whole life, or you've read the Bible your whole life, this is a familiar passage to you. I'd like for you to spend a little time with me and suspend some judgment Act like you don't know what the end of the story is for a minute. Be a part of the audience that Jesus is unpacking the story to. Because if you do, you'll begin to see the richness that is woven into this story. And it really turns out in a way that's utterly unexpected, a twist at the end. So let's think about first these two people that Jesus characterizes. They are remarkably similar, even though they would hate to think that they are similar. For example, they are both members of the same church. They go to the same service. This is a, this is a normal practice in Jesus' day where on the evening time there was a worship service. There was a liturgy. And people would come and there would be a time of personal prayer that they could have there in the temple in Jerusalem. We're in Jerusalem. We're at the temple. And both of these men belong to that congregation. They're both praying. They're both personally praying. And they are praying to the same God. They're praying to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, they're, they're both dressed in ways that make them utterly conspicuous. This tax collector is one of the richest men in all of Jerusalem. The Pharisee is dressed in his appropriate religious devoted garb. But where they stand in the temple is completely different. The Pharisee comes right up to the front. Now, it's not like here, the front row. You're not closer to the Holy of Holies here. You're in the spit zone, but not closer to the Holy of Holies. But the idea you've got to realize is this Pharisee is as close to the Holy place as close to the Holy of Holies as he can possibly get. Do you understand how audacious that is? The Holy Place is a place that's only entered into once a year. And it's only entered into by the high priest. He spends two weeks praying himself up so he doesn't die. He washes himself with so many baths he doesn't have any skin left. He has friends who intercede for him all night. 
And even after all that is done, they tie a rope around his ankle because in case he does something wrong and dies, they don't want to have to go in and get him. They'll pull him out by the rope. And this guy, in his own reliance on his righteousness, in his own reliance on his attributes, he stands right up here as close as he can possibly get. And he doesn't mind if everybody sees him. The other guy... He stands as far away from the holy place as he can possibly get and still be in the temple. He is conspicuous because of where he sits. He's a back row person. (laughs) No offense intended. But for him, he's back there because he feels guilt. He's back there because he feels shame. He doesn't want to be seen, but because of where he is and what he does, he cannot help but be seen. Both are conspicuous. Both are praying. Now, here's some of the differences. If you were to see a Pharisee, they would be dressed very much like our Hasidic neighbors dress. You would immediately recognize their devotion. You would immediately recognize them as being distinct in their own practices of their faith. You would see by his clothing. You would see by his haircut. You would see by everything about him. But you have to understand something about the Pharisees. They were the working class people. They were not the upper class. The upper class were a group called the Sadducees. They were the priestly class. They were incredibly wealthy and they were very, very upper class and powerful. The Pharisees were the hard-working people of the society. They, they took care of their families. They apprenticed their children. They, 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 they really were in every way devoted. They fasted twice a week. They gave their tithes. They were Bible-believing. They even produced principles so they could keep the law better. They were remarkable. As a matter of fact, if all of you were Pharisees, our budget would double. (laughs) Maybe triple. We could build a building. So you have to look. If you're in the audience right now and you're thinking about these two guys, you have to understand you would be pulling for the Pharisee. You would not. If you don't know the end of this story, you're like, well, he's certainly the one in. Everything about him looks better than everything about the other guy. So let's talk about the other guy a little bit here. Let's say that both of these guys are coming for membership at Risen King Church. And we're going to give them an interview. Let's, let's just do an interview first of Mr. Pharisee. So if we were as a church to interview Mr. Pharisee for membership, we'd ask him some of these questions. These questions are based on his answers in his prayer. Notice, we ask him, do you live a life that's different from others? Well, he's already told God, I thank you that I'm different from other men. So he would answer that. Clearly, you have no problem answering that. I live a life that's different. Is there any open or public sin in your life that would bring shame to the name of Christ or to His church? Oh, I'm glad you asked me that question. Because there is no shame. There is no sin in my life. There is nothing that doesn't bring glory to God in my life. That's what he would answer to us. He would say, do you have concern for others? Oh, yeah. do I have concern for others? You know, I, I, was just thinking the other, I was just thinking just a little while ago there, but, but for the grace of God, would, I'd be like that tax collector. 
I have concern for others. Of course I have concern for others. Do you practice spiritual disciplines? Do you read your Bible and pray? Of course, since I was a child, I've memorized the Scripture. I meditate on them day and night. I pray. I even pray out in public so everybody can hear me. Do you give the Lord from your finances? Yes, I give Him 10% of everything I have. You see, the Pharisee, if we were to give him a membership interview with just those five questions, he would pass with flying colors. He would be a model, he would be a model member. Except, there's one question that isn't asked here, and there's an answer that's not given. We'll get to that in a minute. But if we were to instead look to the tax collector, I want to go at the tax collector in kind of an indirect way. I don't know how many of you have a credit card, MasterCard, Visa, or whatever it might be. And I'm sure if you do, you pay off the balance every month and you owe them nothing. (laughs) But if you ever were like me, where you have had extended balances and you were paying, and particularly before there were automatic payments, and you had to send your payments in the mail, perhaps like me, you've missed payments at times. Only for the bill to arrive and suddenly you realize, not only did you miss a payment, but they're getting you now. They just upped your interest rate up to like 20-something percent because they can do whatever they want to. And they have given you a late fee that, that you know, was more than your payment sometimes. And you're sitting there going, oh my goodness, I will never... And you say things at that moment that Pharisees would never say about MasterCard or Visa. You know, words that shouldn't come out of your mouth. And you say, I'm going to pay this off and I'm never going to do this again. Well, suppose the IRS decided to give over all tax collecting to MasterCard or to Visa. And suddenly, they could set the interest rate on your taxes. Not only are you paying taxes, but now you have to pay to Visa to collect your taxes. And if you are late, they can bring the full force of the government down on you to make sure that all late fees are paid. So that is what happened with the Roman government. They hired out the tax collection to particular individuals and agencies who would collect their taxes for the Roman government. So what happened was the people never knew how much tax they were actually paying because they were paying tax plus commission. And the commission was whatever the tax collector decided it could be. So there was an incredible oppression that these tax collectors brought upon the finances of the community. And if you didn't pay them, they had the full weight of the Roman army to make good on all your payments. This was one of the most hated men in the society. Now, Jesus makes it clear that not only is this a tax collector, but this is a tax collector who has reached the pinnacle in the Middle East of tax collecting. Because he's a tax collector in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a capital city. Jerusalem was like a financial center of the Near East. And so he was in Manhattan of the Middle East. And he had reached the Fortune 500 of tax collecting. And he was wealthy beyond measure. He had a penthouse condo in the Manhattan of Jerusalem. And he had everything he wanted. There was nothing lacking. He had reached the pinnacle of his career. He had all the wealth. He had all the resources. And everything should have been going his way. 
But when Jesus describes this man to the people, they would have hated his guts. And immediately they would have said, he's the one that's not going to heaven. Many of them would have said, he's the one who deserves to go to hell. Now, on top of this, now Jesus offends them even more with the tax collector by the way that the tax collector prayed. Now, in that culture, men did not show emotion when they prayed. Men did not beat their breast. Men did not you know, get into a, a loss of control when they prayed. That was reserved for the women, and it was reserved for when you were mourning or grieving the death of someone. So they would have not only said, this guy is a horrendous guy, but he has no idea how to pray. He prays like a woman. He should know how to pray like a man. There would have been nothing that Jesus was explaining in this that would have drawn them to this tax collector. So one of my, one of my heroes of theology put it out this way. He said, so which one of these two would get to heaven? So he puts out six reasons why it could not possibly be the tax collector. So number one is the tax collector is, collector is an extortionist. He's an extortioner. He is unjust to the poor. Most of his money comes from oppressing the poor. He is an adulterer. Do you notice in the prayer that the Pharisee prays, he says, I thank you that I'm not an adulterer. He's referring to the tax collector who is probably using his wealth and position to use women. He is someone who he's in... a a worship service or a prayer service, and he can't look God in the face. He is so full of shame and guilt. He hasn't been to the temple in many years, or else he would know what to do. And he really doesn't know how to pray. And nobody in that group would have given this guy any chances whatsoever to be the one who was going to heaven. But when you look at the Pharisee, and you look at the qualities that Jesus puts forth of the Pharisee, Number one, he's a man of disciplined prayer. He prays every day. He prays long prayers. He's thankful. He has a heart of gratitude. He's changed. He's different from other people. He lives a far better life in the society that contributes far more to his community than the tax collector. But the number one reason why this guy should go to heaven is because he's a lot more like me than the other guy. Now maybe you don't realize this, but every one of us has an inner Pharisee where we say, here are the rules, I keep my rules. You'll know if you haven't kept my rule when I get mad at you or when I'm offended by you. All of us, in some way, try to have an outward in righteousness, an outer veneer of righteousness. We all want to be known as decent people. We all want to be known as good people. It's funny, I've seen people do the worst things and they say, but I just want you to know I have a good heart. Is this, this, there's this, this thing about us that we have a, a natural affinity towards Phariseeism. To look upon our own righteousness as if it's enough. As a matter of fact, the number one answer that I got when I said, why should God let you into my heaven? The number one answer was, because I believe my good things have outweighed my bad things. Well, I'm pretty convinced the listeners would have chosen the Pharisee. I'm pretty convinced that they would have disdained the tax collector and they would have chosen the Pharisee as the one that Jesus would pick. But what they're missing are the key points of what Jesus is telling in the story. First, in his prayer, you begin to realize that, yes, he is religious, but he has a religion without salvation. 
He has a religion without salvation. How do I know that? Because he doesn't need a Savior. He is his own Savior. He has a no need for mercy because he deserves heaven. He deserves God's love. He deserves God's favor. He has merited it. He does. If you told him he needed grace, he would laugh at you and scorn you because he doesn't need grace. He has earned his position and justified his life by his own actions. But the problem is that all of his actions are outside in righteousness. Outside in righteousness is basically things that anybody can do. For example, a really worthless person can fast. Matter of fact, you could just have money and not be able to eat for a couple of days. You know what I mean? You, you, and, and call it a fast. There's nothing that is truly inside out about fasting. As a matter of fact, an evil person can tithe and we will take your tithe. What you intend for evil, we intend for good. So, You understand what I'm saying? He doesn't say, I'm thankful that I'm more loving and giving to my wife. I'm thankful that I'm patient with my children. I'm thankful that I, I feel such love for those around me who have needs. That my heart is generous and open. No, he doesn't say that. As a matter of fact, have you ever heard a person give thanks and then talk about themselves? Usually when someone gives thanks, they're thanking the person for what they've done for them. They're thanking the person for what they mean to them. But this guy says, I thank you God that I am not like other people. You understand? He doesn't have an inside-out righteousness. He has an outside-in Righteousness. He has the appearance of it. And you know what Isaiah, the prophet, says? God calls that righteousness nothing more than filthy rags. Because you can't fool Him. I mean, can you imagine that this guy has the audacity to stand that close to the Holy of Holies on his own merit? Well, let me hit this a little harder. One of my visiting, one of the visiting professors that really impressed me when I was in seminary was the head of systematic theology at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. His name was Dr. John Gerstner. And uh, he was a, also a Presbyterian pastor, so he preached in a lot of little Presbyterian churches all over Pennsylvania. And one day he went to this church, he told the story of going to this little Presbyterian church, and he preached on sin. And, uh, you know, in the Presbyterian tradition, once you're finished preaching, you have to go out into the uh, lobby and, and meet your critics. I mean, greet your, the congregation. <laughs> so this, you know, the proverbial little old lady of the church, you know, sweet little old lady, comes up to Dr. Gerstner and, and says to him, that sermon made me feel this small. And he looked at her and he said, Madam, that's too much. That's much too much. You understand, if it's even a drop of your righteousness, you're in danger. Even if it's that much. When I was teaching my daughter the Gospel, when I was teaching her that she was a sinner who needed a Savior, I said, 
towards, honey, you need the Lord Jesus Christ to be your Savior because you're a sinner. And she looked at me with those big brown eyes that looked just like her mom's eyes. And she goes, but Daddy, I'm just a little sinner. <laughs> you understand? It's the same attitude the old lady had. There's, if there's just a little bit, friends... This is the whole point of this parable. If there's a little bit of you, it's too much. If there's a little bit of you depending on your own righteousness, it's too much. You're in danger. And the truth is, after years of doing counseling and and meeting with people, and I, I sympathize with people and I empathize when they're going through hard times, but I've seen this one truth in every circumstance that I've ever seen is that our neuroses and our dysfunctions, our lack of resilience in face of our shame and our guilt, our inability to rise up and overcome in conflict and in challenges is because there's too much you. You make it too much about you and not enough about Jesus. John the Baptist said he had to decrease because Jesus had to increase. You look at every conflict you're facing. You look at every place you're offended. You look at every place where you're unforgiving. You look at every place where you're angry and negative and depressed. And I'll guarantee you, you're making it too much about you. And not enough about Jesus. I went to, I went to Atlanta this week to celebrate a friend's 30th anniversary as pastor of a church in Lilburn, and uh, I, I, haven't, I haven't always been in Atlanta alone. Usually Lisa's with me when I'm in Atlanta, and I had all this time alone driving around. Atlanta was a place I was at for 15 years, and Atlanta broke me. It, it broke me in many, many ways, and it showed me lots of the bankruptcy in my soul, and at the same time, it's a place where God met me in powerful ways, and baptized me afresh and gave me a heart for him in, in new and fresh ways. But as I was driving around, I was remembering a, 25 years ago. Um, 25 years ago, I was pastoring a little Presbyterian church in the northeast part of Atlanta in a suburb. And God visited that church. The manifest presence of Christ visited that church. We began to see salvations every Sunday. We saw deliverances take place. We st- he started manifesting His healing presence. People were getting healed. People were getting touched. It was, for me, it was, it was the prayer that I had prayed since I was new of Acts chapter 2. Within six months after that happened, we were asked to not only leave the church, but within a year we were cast out of the denomination that we were a part of. Because what had happened there was against what they wanted to happen there. And I remember, I remember as I was driving around that Lisa and I, as we were realizing we were losing our church and we were losing our denomination, we made this commitment. It was a step. We said, okay, there was this pastor's prayer meeting. There's this gathering of pastors to pray. And we're going to go to it. And we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna see what God has for us. And we went to this restaurant and we were we started sharing with each other. And I remember we started crying over our meal. And uh, 
The meal wasn't that good, but it wasn't worth crying over. <laughs> and we reached hands across the table and we prayed something like this, Lord, please touch us tonight. We don't know if we can make it. We've been cast out. We've been rejected. We've been, you know, we've been told we're not fit. We're not appropriate. We've been told all these things. And we went to this, this prayer gathering and the friend that I celebrated his 30th anniversary, he led that prayer gathering. I met him that night. And he called pastors up and we all began to pray. And I prayed the prayer that that church that I had got kicked out of hated. I prayed for revival. I prayed for awakening. I prayed for visitation. I prayed for a sweeping move of this Holy Spirit. And after it was over, this this pastor who became my friend came up to me and goes, you know how to pray. And he didn't know, but those words caused something to rise up in me. And instead of making it about how hurt I was, or how rejected I felt, or how I lost so much, because I planted that church, and how I lost so much, all of a sudden it was no longer about me. I, it doesn't matter what you see. It doesn't matter what you feel. Your, my hope will always be in the promises that you made to me. And suddenly it was no more Mike, but it was Christ. And it was like a steel rod came in my back. Spiritual backbone. And I'm telling you, I'm not telling you this just because it's a concept, friend. I'm telling you because it's the only thing that works and I'm telling you because it's dangerous for you to even be this big. That when you really, really, friends, when you really want to know power in your life, when you really want to know strength, when you want to know love, when you want to grow in your capacity both to think and to feel and to choose, then the first choice has to be no longer I, but Christ. You see, that Pharisee had the wrong notion that he could waltz into the holy place. He was going to get fried. <laughs> but you and I, we now have something that allows us to enter in. Listen to what the tax collector alone knew. The tax collector alone in the story understood he was bankrupt. He alone understood who he was. He realized he didn't have an outside-in righteousness and he didn't have an inside-out righteousness. You know what's so interesting about the tax collector? He doesn't pray laterally. The Pharisee prayed with a lateral vision at the tax collector. Thank you, Lord, I compare well to him. And some people in churches, even in a group like this, some people in churches, you pray saying, God, thank you I'm not as bad as this guy. Thank you I don't act like that. Thank you I know how to, you know, I know how to handle my money and my time. And I'm not the worthless person like that one. Do you understand? That's what Luke says this is about. It's for all those who have any confidence in their own righteousness and who tend to disdain others because of it. You understand, if there's unforgiveness or bitterness in your heart, it's because you believe you are more righteous than the one you're bitter with. Let me tell you, you stand before God like that, it ain't going to work. 
So the tax collector didn't have lateral vision. He had focused attention on God and his need. And I want you to understand his prayer because in some ways in English, it doesn't convey what he really said. It's, you know, I've prayed this prayer. Haven't you, God, be merciful and me a sinner? You know, I've prayed it sometimes when I thought the police were about to catch me for going over the speed limit. Go, oh, God, please don't let me get caught. Let them pass me by. Make me invisible in Jesus' name. You see, most of us, we just think, oh, you know, this is a prayer you pray to get out of something. This is a prayer that you, so you escape consequences. This is something where you're just like, God, you know, you're merciful, be merciful to me, don't let me get caught. That is not what he's praying, friends. You know what he's praying? He's seeing his bankruptcy. He's seeing his bad choices. He's seeing his injustice. He's seeing how deeply and, and, and how far away from God he is. And here's what he really prays. Oh God, is there any sacrifice you can provide that will actually cover my sin? Is there any sacrifice big enough for my life? You see, he got what the Pharisee didn't get. Even the blood of a lamb on Yom Kippur atones for no one. There is no way that a holy God who has said that He will not tolerate sin can in any way say that if you just kill an animal that somehow that has taken away your guilt and your shame. You must understand what the Bible teaches and that is that all of that blood was pointing to one all-sufficient blood. It was pointing to the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world not to be sacrificed over and over again, but to be sacrificed once for all time. This tax collector understood something that you and I have to understand is that the one telling the story in just a couple of chapters is going to become that Lamb. In just a couple of chapters, he's going to stretch out his own arms on a Roman cross. And he is going to willingly be treated as you deserve so that you can now be treated as he deserves. Yes, that he who knew no sin would become sin so that you can become the righteousness of God in Christ. I love, I think Tim Keller puts it this way, I love it when he says, he who is actually righteous became legally sinful. So you and I who are actually sinful become legally righteous. But you see, this tax collector got it. He said, Lord, my life is too devastated. My sins are too great. That animal cannot be enough. And in Hebrews 2, it's interesting that there's a word that he uses in prayer that's not used anywhere else in the Bible except in Hebrews 2. And it's in Hebrews 2 that the answer to the prayer is given. It says Jesus is the sacrifice for atonement for the sins of His people. What the blood of the Lamb on Yom Kippur, what the blood of bulls and goats, what the blood of sheep and turtle doves could not accomplish because it all pointed to the blood of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Well, for me, sometimes when it's really 
this beautiful and this deep, I can't help but go back to the hymns that I sang as a child. And one of my favorite hymns of all time is a hymn called Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me. And it, it points back not only to, the, to the, the publican or the tax collector's prayer, but it points back to Moses' desire to see God, to stand before God, to look God in the face. And God said, Moses, you can't do it. If you do, you will die. And so Moses said, but I, I, I must see your glory. And God says, okay, I will let my backside of my glory pass by you. But it, it gives us one little limitation. He has to be hidden in the cleft of the rock as he sees the glory pass by. And that is a picture, friends, of the Lord Jesus Christ. That he is that rock in whom you are covered, in whom you are unconditionally loved, accepted, but also cleansed and made righteous in him. So that, yes, do you know what Hebrews says? Because of Him, you can boldly go into the Holy of Holies. You can boldly and with confidence approach the throne of grace so that you can always find help in your times of trouble. You can't go on your own, but you can boldly, confidently go in Him. Why is that? Because instead of you justifying your life, He justifies your life for you. When you have to stand up before the Creator before the judge of the living and the dead, if you are in Christ, He kind of knocks you out of the way and says, don't talk, I'll do all the talking. He becomes your substitute. He becomes your representative. He becomes your legal representative. He becomes your champion. Why do we sing these songs about how no fear anymore? It's not because I'm not a fearful person. It's because I have a champion. And that champion is fearless. He entered into death for me. He blew the doors off death death for me. And now in Him, I can approach the holy place. Am I making sense to you today? Listen to what Rock of Ages says. Not the labor of my hands. None of those could fulfill the law's demands. Even if my zeal, it says no respite, if, even if I was zealous all the time, which, which one of us are, and even if my tears could flow, you understand something? Many of us think if we're just sorry enough, that'll be enough. That'll atone. If I just feel badly enough, as if God's going to send you to time out for a while, and then once you've atoned and felt sorry enough, you can come back. Let me tell you, friends, tears atone for nothing when it comes to sin. If the blood of animals cannot atone, then tears cannot atone. But here is what this great hymn says, All for sin could not atone, Thou must save, and Thou alone. Here's the, here's the crux of it. Nothing in my hand I bring. That's, that's the tax collector, you see. The Pharisee brought all kind of things. I thank you, God. I'm not like other men. I fast. I pray. I give my money. You owe me. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. You know why the tax collector was beating his breast and, and wailing? Because he was naked before God. Naked to thy simply, 
Naked come to Thee for dress. Helpless come to Thee for grace. You see, you will never fly to the fountain if you don't know how foul you are. Because you won't need it. You're like, I'm, I'm a decent person. I'm a good person. This is where people like me get in trouble because I believe it has to be this intense. I believe it has to be an encounter that's all or nothing with God. Foul I to the fount of life. There's still this much of you, it's too much. If you're still saying, I'm just a little sinner, then you're a little too much. Foul I too, thy fount of fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. And I know that's intense at the end. But once you see yourself like the tax collector saw himself, this is what you feel. This is why you beat your breast. You don't care what the gender roles are. You say, I've got to have, I've got to have relief. Would you stand with me? I'm going to ask you to do two or three things now. The first one is would you say this would you say this verse with me as a declaration to God? Even if you've come to Christ and you know him, I tell you this never gets old to me. And it also reminds me that nothing in my hand I bring. Would you say it with me? Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless come to thee for grace. Foul I to thy fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Would you bow your heads with me? Would you close your eyes? For many of us, we know the answer to that second question. What will I say? to defend my life? What will I say to justify my existence? What will I say so that I can go home and be with God forever? We're not going to say, Lord, I tried my best. We're not going to say, oh God, excuse me, you know, I grew up in a bad home. We're not going to say, hey, I didn't have advantages. We're not going to say any of that. We're going to say, oh Lord, it's the sacrifice of Jesus that covers my sin. I receive his sacrifice. And, and we're going to have the confidence that comes from having been washed in the blood that alone can cleanse and can atone. But if today, if today is a day and you're seeing it for the first time or you're seeing it in a fresh way, don't let this moment go. Do business with God today. And let me help you. I'll, I'll put it in words that you can pray out loud. I'm going to ask everybody in the church to pray it. It really doesn't hurt for all of us to pray it. It's really a beautiful thing every time. When I, I got to tell you, when I saw this, this prayer in the fullness of what it is, oh God, is there a sacrifice that can atone for my life? I started weeping. Because I know the things that I've done. I know the secrets. I am the tax collector. I'm not even close to the Pharisee. And when I, when I saw, and I saw that the one who is telling the parable is the very one who becomes the sacrifice. How can you let this go? He wants to represent you. He wants to substitute for you. 
And if there's even a little bit of you left, it's too much. Would you say these words with me? Dear Jesus, I receive your sacrifice as my defense, as my justification, your blood, your righteousness, your obedience. I receive you as my Savior, as my Lord, as my life. I receive your forgiveness. If you mean that, even if before you came in you didn't know that, but if you mean it, this is your birthday. You're born anew born afresh you don't just have a morally restrained heart you have a spiritually transformed heart and that's why I want to ask you to do one more one more thing here I want you to renounce that little bit of you or that lot of you you know we'll never have too much of Jesus but we can always have too much of you Would you renounce that with me? Do you not see that we have to get rid of this inner Pharisee? We have to live as redeemed people in an unredeemed land. We have to live as resurrected people in an unresurrected earth. There cannot be even a little bit of your own righteousness. So would you say this with me if that makes sense to you? I repent of making it too much about me. I crucify my inner Pharisee, my critical spirit, my judgmentalism. It is no longer I, but Christ who lives in me. As we close out our prayer together, I want you to make a declaration with me. I have found quite often that people resist believing that they're truly forgiven. That often what happens is you'll say, God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself. Let me tell you, there is no higher law than God's law. You set your law above God's law, you have done something very foolish. If He forgives you, that's all that matters. So I want you to make a declaration with me that you are forgiven. So will you do that with me? Will you say these words? I declare. I, declare, I, am, forgiven. I am forgiven. I am a forgiven child of God. Jesus' payment is sufficient. The Father will never take a second payment for my sins. I am forgiven. I am a beloved child of God. Now, this moment is really sacred. So I want you to do something for me. It's kind of a prophetic thing where you see yourself 
with a stake in your hand, like a, a stick in your hand, a stake in the ground type thing. And what I want you to do is I want you to put that stake in the ground right here and you're going to move from this place forward, not backwards. You will not believe the difference when you're no longer making it about you. When you make it about Him, then you fill up with His power. You fill up with His love. You have capacity for His heart for other people. And you become the best you you ever could imagine you becoming. But if you keep it being a little bit you, then it will all be you. Lord, we seal what you're doing in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.